You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Employee Safety Podcast. I'm Peter Steinfeld. I invited Lori Price on the show today to discuss emergency management in healthcare facilities. Lori is the Emergency Management Coordinator for Memorial Health System, also known as MHS, in Marietta, Ohio. It's a nationally recognized, community-driven healthcare system. Lori oversees planning for the hospital system's disaster response program, which includes the safety of employees, patients, and the facilities, too. As you all know, the healthcare industry has been under constant pressure for the past two years due to the pandemic. I thought Lori's unique experience would help shed some light on what organizations like hers have endured and, more importantly, what they've done in response. Let's get into the show. Lori, if you would, please tell us just a little bit about your role and responsibilities at Memorial Health System. I'm an emergency management coordinator here at a small rural healthcare system. We have three hospitals and two freestanding emergency departments and approximately 70 clinics spread out over a multi-county, multi-state area. We are the largest employer in our county. We have approximately 3,500 employees, and we work in my department primarily on disaster and emergency planning, preparedness, response, and recovery. Fantastic. Thank you for that context. Now, when I think about Ohio and the Midwest, I immediately think about unpredictable weather. What are some of the other environmental factors that you consider as you conduct your risk analysis for potential threats? Well, natural disasters, of course, are a big part of what impacts our area. We are at the confluence of two large rivers, so we have flooding fairly often. Actually, for us, it's not a question of if we're going to have more flooding. It's a question of when the next time is that we'll have flooding. Severe weather in general can be an issue in our area, because we're heavily wooded. And so if we have wind events, tornadoes, ice storms, anything that would cause tree limbs to come down, not only does that cause travel restrictions by blocking the roads, but it also takes out the electricity and can take out communications. So we have to watch for those types of things. In addition to that, we have experienced recently a cyber attack. Unfortunately, we are also participating in the current ongoing COVID pandemic. So we we experience a variety of different types of risk factors. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Well, considering all these risks you just mentioned, what is Memorial Health System's approach or philosophy on emergency management? Our accreditation standards require us to have what they call an all-hazards approach, and that basically means to be ready for anything. We look at it from two different directions. One is like any large corporation, we need to protect our our facilities, our staff, and also our clients who are on site, which in our case is our patients. And then secondly, we also need to be prepared to provide our service, which is healthcare, in the event that there's a disaster in the community around us that may not impact us directly, but could cause a large patient surge to come to the hospital. And we need to be ready to deal with that also. Mm, Yeah, that's an extra burden that a lot of organizations don't have. Right. Yeah. What methods do you use to prepare all your employees, regardless of which department they work in, to respond to emergencies like these? We start at orientation when they initially come on board with us, and we have several days of training that everyone does. In addition, there is 
quite extensive annual training that we have to do each year, which is mostly an online system that we're able to work through. We are also required to do a certain number of disaster exercises and drills each year. Those are driven by our risk analysis here at the healthcare system. It's referred to as the hazard vulnerability analysis, and that's what drives a lot of our program. It can be very challenging to try and incorporate all of these things alongside active healthcare. I'm always trying to find that balance between getting people away from their normal duties for a few hours to do training. And then with the larger exercises, we usually conduct those alongside of active healthcare because if we do have a disaster event happen, we still take care of the patients that we have before that event occurs. It, it's on top of, not instead of our normal workload. Mm. Do you find that people get training fatigue or don't take it seriously? And if so, how do you address that? We haven't had too much of that. I think the problem that we run into is that I have to be very judicious, very careful, because sometimes the workload is such that there's just not enough time for the staff to pay enough attention to the training to make it worthwhile in a way that wouldn't detract from patient care. Mm. So I'm, I'm always watching for that balance. I've had some large scale exercises planned. And at the very last minute, we've been swamped and I've had to postpone that for another day. Sure. You also mentioned online training. Have you found that to be a game changer to really help people get more engaged? Or is it one of those things where it, it's more of it just exposes them and you really have to reinforce it through in-person or on-premise type stuff? I personally really prefer to reinforce that. I know that with COVID, we've all had to learn to do a lot more with online communications and everything. But I find that the hands-on in-person training seems to stick a little bit better, especially in terms of the emergency management issues. Mm. Do you think that's because people see something and they suddenly have a flood of questions and if they can't get them answered right there in the online system, they kind of tune out or is that just one of many factors? That's one factor. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I can make it more realistic by dimming lights or bringing in certain elements into an in-person training that I can't really do in an online training. In an online training, everyone's in their office or their home or wherever, and they're very comfortable and they're very confident. But some of the things that we have to discuss are very challenging. And so sometimes it helps to be able to be in-person so that I can shake things up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that MHS experienced a cyber attack. Can you tell our listeners about that emergency specifically and how it impacted your people, patients, and facilities? We had a cyber attack from a group that was called a Hive attack, and it affected all of our computers because of server issues. Surprisingly enough, our phone system did not go down. Huh. And we had trained that that might well happen, and yet it didn't, which was a wonderful blessing to still have phone communications. Yeah. But we quickly discovered which departments had been relying the most heavily on digital forms and uh, policies and procedures, digital storage of all of that information. We had to scramble to reproduce some forms that had we'd been using digitally for many, many years. And so we no longer had dated paper copies of those. So that was one of the things that we experienced experienced. We're still working on completing all of the data entry from all of those paper forms that were created. Some of our vendors' computers wouldn't talk to our computer because they could tell that our server had been impacted. So I guess 
servers know not to talk to contaminated servers. Right. We had some payroll issues and needed to make sure that, that we could find the right workarounds to ensure that time reporting and payroll was being handled properly. We had diagnostics issues where normally, for example, x-rays or, or other diagnostic testing, the results are transmitted digitally to those departments that read those, and then they take their findings and transmit those digitally back to patients and their physicians. And so we had to hand carry a lot of that information because we just no longer had that pathway to move that information. Our cafeteria was impacted where their cash registers didn't work. So we had a lot of free staff meals. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was surprising what things were impacted and which things weren't. Yeah, I guess you never know until it happens. Did you find that your exercise before the actual cyber attack occurred helped your response or contributed to a positive outcome or a more positive outcome? I've had input from people that it did. One of the things that we did, it was a tabletop exercise. And so at least all of the department directors had walked through the process of thinking about what they would do in their department if we had a cyber attack and had those types of problems. So I, I think that we were able to circumvent that initial shock a little bit. Yeah, it seems like if people could just have a little bit of prep, then when the lights start, sh start shining in their eyes, they're not like a deer in the headlights and freeze. So that, that can absolutely help right. if you can get a little bit of jump on things. Right. We were able to use alert media to notify staff of the ongoing situations, especially initially. And that was also one of our vendors that their computer wasn't scared off by our computer system. <laughs> So that worked well. Oh, fantastic. Well, so communication is important in all sorts of emergencies, including cyber attack situations. Are there other ways that you're, that communication has contributed to or helped you improve emergency management? In general, in a disaster or an emergency situation, in my experience, information will rise to fill the void, whether it's correct and factual information or whether it's rumor, it will come to the surface. And so with communications being something that we're mindful of and something that I can get a jump on, I feel like if I can get in there first with correct information, with factual information, then that decreases the amount of rumor that people are exposed to. And it also decreases the likelihood that they'll buy into some of that. And that more than anything has made an enormous difference. That's a fantastic phrase. Information will rise to fill the void. I am totally stealing that from you. You're welcome to it. <laughs> I hope our listeners do too. That's really great because I actually say something similar quite often that if you don't control the narrative, someone or something else will. And that's, I think your way is much better of saying it. So that's great. Thank you. <laughs> Can you give an example of an emergency that impacted not only your organization, but also the community at large and perhaps even you personally and, and how you guys handled it? Back in 2012, there was a derecho storm, one of the straight line wind storms that came through our region. I believe it affected uh, 11 different states. There were power outages. Communications were out. It, it was a very, very impactful storm. One of the issues that we had in our area was that due to the loss of electric power, there were a number of individuals in this region who have electricity-dependent life-saving devices that they use at home, such as oxygen concentrators. So without power, they didn't have anywhere to go with those. We set up what we called oxygen bars. Basically, these people weren't 
having immediate health problems, but if they did not have access to electricity, they would have. And so uh, we would have maybe 30 or, or 35 people come in and just basically bring their oxygen concentrators and plug into our electricity to stay here during the days. So it had an impact on our facility in that we had to come up with some areas for these oxygen bars to be established, while at the same time, a large number of our employees who live in this region were also impacted. My home, we were without power for 10 days. And uh, I, it was in the middle of the summer, the, the heat of July. Oh, and uh, I joke that I resorted to crime. I stole my dog's swimming pool. Set <laughs> 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 it up in a shaded area and spent most of that time sitting in lawn chairs with our feet in the pool. The dogs were also allowed to use the pool, but that was how we stayed cool because we had no air conditioning, no power to run fans. And so it was a very interesting time. Wow. As you look back on things, is there one important lesson you've learned in your current role or previously in your career that impacted your approach to emergency management overall? I think one of the key factors is that many emergencies are actually due to human behavior rather than nature or other external forces. For example, if a river floods and it's out in the wilderness and mud rises up the banks and the river goes down and goes on about its course, was that a disaster? Not really. But if we have built all sorts of homes there and structures and, and uh, have all of our infrastructure there and the river rises, then all of a sudden we have a disaster. And so because much of it is due to human behavior, I think much of it can be changed through human behavior. And so that's one of my key points that I consistently go back to is looking at how we can impact the human behaviors so that we can decrease the impact of the disaster. Mm, that's really great advice. Well, one last question before we close out. Do you have any other advice for an emergency manager at any level of experience about how to be successful in their role? A key thing is to have strong written and verbal communication skills. I use that every day consistently. We have some folks that are, have a lot of experience in disaster response, but maybe don't have the written and verbal communication skills, and they really struggle in this field. Another thing is to stay in your lane. We have a mm -hmm. lot of folks that are multi-talented and could be quite effective in many different positions, but once you are assigned one, once you accept that one, it's critical that you stay there and don't try to be everything to everybody. And then finally, I would say to develop your own default standard operating procedures, your own SOPs, so that they become so automatic that you can react from a strong position rather than from a scattered one. Mm, that's actually fantastic advice. And the first thing you said about communication, do you have any real world examples of how people can improve their overall communication ability, either in writing or verbally? How would you get better at that? I have taught some emergency management courses at the community college level. And probably the administration is not terribly pleased with me because I tell <laughs> students that if they are not strong in written and verbal communications, they need to drop my class and go take classes in writing and in verbal communications. 
whether it's communicating disaster messages to the public or to my staff here at the hospital, whether it's writing grant proposals or trying to communicate with other hospitals or state agencies, those things are essential. And there's just, there is no workaround if you don't have those skills. Yeah, without a doubt. That's really great advice. I've always found that if you can find someone that has absolutely no interest in what it is you're doing and you can communicate to them in as few words as possible, what you're trying to get across and they say, oh, okay, I got it. (laughs) Then you've really hit the mark. (laughs) All right. Well, Lori, I've really learned a lot today and appreciate all you do to keep our frontline healthcare workers and all your patients safe. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You bet. Well, if anyone wants to learn more about you or MHS, how can they find you out there? They can reach out to me directly. Um, My email is lsprice at mhsystem, S-Y-S-T-E-M dot O-R-G. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks again to Lori and all our listeners for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to subscribe to future episodes at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. You can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which we would certainly appreciate. That concludes our show today. Stay safe out there, everyone. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.